Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Sadly, the USA has been involved in many wars over my lifetime, often leaving incredible scars and wounds on the country in which we fought. The war of my youth was in Vietnam, and in my early years of doing the Spirit in Action program, I spoke with a veteran of that war who has dedicated decades of his life to helping Vietnam heal from the immense damage left in that country upon our departure. Mike Bame has led an organization he named Madison Quakers, Inc., which established, among other things, a loan fund, a Milai Peace Park, built schools, and much, much more. I decided that I needed to check in with him about his continuing work with Vietnam, and so Mike Bame joins us now via Zoom from near Madison, Wisconsin. Mike, I'm so happy to have you back now after 15 years for Spirit in Action. Well, it's good to be back. I hadn't realized it was so long. My first couple years of doing Spirit in Action, I connected with you. Of course, I'd known about you because I had been in Milwaukee because I'm good connections with the elders, Joanne and Joe. And did you have any connection with Joanne Elder's memorial service just a week ago? I had planned on attending, but I'm having memory problems. And so I got the date wrong. I showed up on the wrong date dressed in my suit, but I was able to watch a video of it, and it was just amazing what people have done with their lives. I think that Joe Elder, and maybe Joanne Elder, I don't know, maybe both of them together, had a lot to do with helping you get started on working on this project with respect to Vietnam, the organization that you call Madison Quakers, Inc., do I correctly remember that Joe Elder was one of the key people in that process? Oh, he was. I mean, the first couple of years, I tried to support myself through carpentry work, remodeling. But then it came time for a choice. It was going to have to be one or the other. And I didn't know what to do. So I called Joe. I said, here's where I'm at now. Do you have any ideas? And from that moment on, for nine years... He and Joanne paid everything, paid all my bills. They paid my rent, my utilities. When I needed money for food, Joe would go to the ATM machine, withdraw $200, put it in a manila envelope and hang it from his front door. Nine years. Whenever I think about commitment to peace or just to do something good, I always think of Joe and Joanne Elder because it's rare to come across that depth of commitment. My reminder to contact you came because of a, an article in the Madison Friends newsletter. It reprinted something that Joe shared with you and others back in 2013 and updated it a little bit more. That's why I finally reached out to you after these 15 years, and I'm so glad I did. I am sad, however, to note, in spite of all the continuing work both needed and being done in Vietnam to recover from that devastating war, that the commitment of people in the U.S. has lessened. I mean, nobody wants to hear about it. Of course, there have been a lot of wars since, 
our Quaker meeting here in Eau Claire just was part of a coalition that was taking in Afghan refugees after the collapse of the government there that we had been propping up after since our invasion. So one of the problems we have, of course, is that there's a lot of damage we've caused in the U.S., whether with African-Americans here or with Vietnamese or with Koreans or with there's a lot of it. And I'm so thankful that you, having spent time in Vietnam, continue to care for the people there. Could you tell me a little bit about what the situation is like in Vietnam since I talked to you back in 2007? Is the country better, worse? How many unhealed wounds are still waiting for our support? Well, the Vietnam of today is unrecognizable from the Vietnam that I first saw my first time back to Vietnam in 1992. I visited My Lai. I had gone over in 1992 with some other American veterans to help build a medical clinic. When a clinic was finished, a number of us traveled north. And once we got to Quang Ngai province, I insisted we stop at My Lai, where I played my fiddle. I actually played taps on that fiddle. And it was for everybody not just the Vietnamese, but Americans, all that death and suffering. But getting there, the roads were hardly could be called a road. It was potholed, clay road. There was no electricity. Now there are three to five-star hotels in that same area. The transformation had just been profound, unbelievable. And that has caused some people who have come to my presentations who have gone over there as tourists to question the need of any further help for the people of Vietnam. And my response to that is to remind people what we did. We killed millions of people. Hundreds of thousands of them were children. More hundreds of thousands had their arms and legs and faces and genitals blown off. The Vietnamese government estimates now that at least 4 million Vietnamese people are affected by Agent Orange. And every person, every Vietnamese person who survived that war is deeply traumatized. And that they will never be healed. The only way that trauma is going to go away is when they die. But if we think that our people, when they're saying they, because of the economic recovery, the Vietnamese don't need help anymore, then they're, they're actually saying that is all as if it never existed. All of that death and suffering dissipates somehow because now they have access to electric toothbrushes. We have an obligation to the people of Vietnam, and that obligation is never going away. Back when I interviewed you in 2007, and that interview people can still listen to on NordenSpiritRadio.org, the website you pointed me at was MilaiPeacePark.org. That no longer is the website. I, right now, the website to access your work is MQI, that stands for Madison Quakers Incorporated, mqivietnam.org. Right. And I was wondering why the switch, and then I, I realized that in 2018, the government there announced a building of a new Milai Peace Park. And this was one that's going to take three to five years. It was going to be 101 acres. It's near the Sonmi Relic site. And for people who are listening who don't realize this, the Milai Massacre, as it was known, 
Over 500 Vietnamese were killed, were slaughtered under the command of Lieutenant Cali. And he was the only one who was actually convicted of doing anything there, of slaughtering those 500, mostly women, children, old men. So the My Lai Peace Park now is not fully constructed, I believe, but they're in the process of doing it with a $13 million budget. And the Milai Peace Park that you visited and were part of encouraging and supporting probably didn't have a budget of $13 million, did it? No, but the reason for the name change for our website is that the Medicine Meeting were actual sponsors for these projects from 1994 to the year 2000. And then they felt that the nurturing process had run its course and asked if we could become our own entity. And so we applied for and received 501c3 tax exempt status from, you know, from the IRS. And Joe Elder, who has never asked for anything, you know, despite all he has contributed to these projects, asked that we call ourselves Madison Quakers, Inc., to keep that linkage with the Madison meeting. That's why the name changed. Now, this other peace part failed. That came about because Mrs. Thuy is the younger sister of one of the vice, and I forget, one of the highest ranking officials in, in Vietnam. And it's like she discovered My Lai. And so she had came up with this grandiose plan. It would cost millions of dollars. She based the design on the Peace Park in Hiroshima. A lot of concrete, a lot of glass, concrete buildings, concrete walkways. What wasn't mentioned is that it would dis- it was going to displace more than a hundred families from their land. They would have gotten some pittance for uh, for reimbursement, but it was and eventually it was shot down by the province people's committee. They refused to support it. Kind of surprising. But I met with her, and it took all my skills as a diplomat to engage in conversation with her. I mean, there was there was just it was her. It was really a monument to herself. And so I kept saying, well, what we need are projects that are going to help the people in the province. And, you know, it's like talking past each other. But in in the end, it failed anyway. But our Peace Park, which has been in existence for more than two decades, has still never been completely accepted by the province people's committee. There's a lot of pass through in these government positions, and there's no telling the incoming person about ongoing issues or projects. And so eventually so many people had passed through the provincial government, they don't even know it exists, that the Peace Park exists. Her motives, of course, she never, when she talked about why she wanted to do it, it was for, you know, I know I'm not still really sure, but motives aside, it was, it was going to be very destructive, you know, displacing, you know, as I said, more than 100 families and and replaced with a lot of concrete and glass, you know. But I mentioned the province people's committee refused to support it, so it, it never got off the ground. But we're having problems with our own Peace Park. I mean, for more than two decades, we have been trying to make that Peace Park a reality with no support from the province government. And these governmental positions, there's a lot of pass-through. People stay for a little bit, and then they move on to another position. The problem is there's 
no passing on of information to the incoming people about ongoing projects. So the Province People's Committee now don't even know the Mealy Peace Park exists. It would be a shame for this to fail because there have been a lot of profound moments over these two decades. I mean, the victims, survivors of the Mealy Massacre planted their trees. American peace activists have planted trees together. Hibakusha have planted their trees. There's a tree planted for Rachel Corey and so on. It would be a shame to lose all of that. You went back to Vietnam, I think, in 1992 and visited, and I think you've been back multiple times since. You told me back when I first interviewed you in 2007 that there are a lot of veterans who wanted to go back and visit and to some degree just touch that part of the youth, maybe reconnect with Vietnam, see it differently in the aftermath of the end of the war. Does that continue? They are. Combat vets get a pass in my book. I mean, I hold a lot of people responsible for that war, but not the combat vets. What they went through, nobody could ask anything more of them. And if it helps them by coming back to Vietnam, I guess that's a good thing. I think I'll leave it at that. When was the last time you were to Vietnam? Well, because of COVID, the last time I was there was 20, this is 2022, 2019, just before the outbreak. And I'll finally return again next March, three years, you know, since the last time I was there. But since 92, I've been going over once a year and in early years, a few times, twice a year. So you've watched Vietnam change. I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Togo in West Africa, and I visited 10 years after I had been a volunteer there, and I was amazed at the changes. Of course, when people are starting from abject poverty and very little in the way of resources, just to get up to, as you say, electric toothbrushes is a long road, and and the changes are massive. Do the people of Vietnam seem to be bitter at all about what they called the American War? I only once have I seen hatred coming from a man who survived the war because the Americans had killed his parents. Like I said, I've been doing this more than 30 years, and I'm still, I still can't fully understand what level of maturity it takes to put that hatred aside because the hatred exists towards Americans. And yet you never see it. I am welcomed into people's homes, genuinely welcomed into people's homes for tea or for a beer or whatever. I couldn't do that. So yes, the hatred exists, but you won't see it. But how could it not exist? It's just how is it even possible that they could behave towards me and other Americans, and especially other American veterans, the way they do. I think it's now been 48 years since the last soldiers were withdrawn from Vietnam. That's most people's lifespan in Vietnam, too. I don't know what the average lifespan is, but I suspect that most of the people who were alive at that time are very old at this point. Do you still see the missing limbs the damage that Agent Orange brought to so many people, is that still visible when you're there? Oh, yes. For example, we, one of our partners in Vietnam is 
VAPA, the Vietnamese Association for Victims of Agent Orange. We've done a number of things like built a rehabilitation center, helped individual families affected by Agent Orange. And of course, they, you know, we just go from family to family to family when we're being hosted by VAVA and seeing the effects of Agent Orange. It's visible, but uh, tourists won't see it. You'd have to get away from the Highway 1. And folks, we're speaking with Mike Bame today. He is the founder of and one of the driving forces behind an organization called Madison Quakers, Inc. Their website is mqivietnam.com. Org. He volunteered to be part of the Vietnam War. My understanding is, though, Mike, that you were not actually in combat. You were a clerk somewhere, right? I was in a minor branch of intelligence. But what it meant is I worked in an office. And we had incoming, but that's just, that's not even close approximation of combat. We do have the link for mqivietnam.org on the website. One thing I want to make sure, you already mentioned this, Joe Elder, who was a faithful partner in getting this going, advocated for the organization that you formed, separate from Madison Quakers Friends Meeting. It is called MQI, Madison Quakers Incorporated. You were raised Catholic, and I think you've been unaffiliated religiously. So you're not a Quaker. No. So, uh, people can blame your words on you, not on Quakers. <laughs> or maybe we, I, I don't want to give too much credit to Quakers, although Joe Elder and many friends did have a big part in supporting this. You and a lot of Vietnamese are responsible for the many good things that are continuing to happen as part of this organization. Let's talk a bit about the kind of work that you've done there. So this is not only to be having a peace park there. It's not only for people to be visiting Vietnam, but you've been trying to work on the ground to heal a nation that has been so damaged. And, you know, the ravages of war are hard to rebuild from when you don't have many resources. One of the tributes to you that I only found just recently is that you have an exceptional unprecedented event. In 2002, you became an honorary member of the Women's Union of Quang Nai Province. How many other men are honorary members of the Women's Union of Quang Nai? None. None. Not even Ho Chi Minh. <laughs> and the thing is, it's a very, very sexist, macho society. And so the Vietnamese men don't understand why I would allow myself to be made an honorary member. And I have to keep telling them that I'm proud to be a member of the Women's Union. So they make their little jokes, and that's okay. It was a privilege. And why did they do that? What were they saying to you? I think this was, Fan Bando is our project coordinator. And I remember previous to 2002, he would make some joke about, you know, because of all the work I'm doing, helping the women, I should be made a member. So I think he persuaded them to make me an honorary member. I, I don't see them taking that on themselves because they wouldn't know what the re repercussions might be. But I think they're satisfied with it. You know, nothing bad happened. You know, I didn't get angry or whatever. And so we caught, every year I'm there, we, we go out for a few, you know, at least one 
meal together with the women's union and talk about that. But I, I'd like to bring up that the Meal at Peace Park is just one of our projects. Our first project actually was a microcredit program based on the Grameen Bank for the poor women of Milai. And since then, we still have those microcredit programs in 12 villages now. We have built three eight-room primary schools for Milai. We've installed water filtration systems for that school and many other schools, especially the ethnic schools up in the mountains. Our main focus now are water wells wells for water because our, our funding has been in steady decline over the years. So that's where we get the most bang for the buck. You know, a, a water well helps a lot of people. I also understand that you provide scholarships for poor students. Right. Scholarships, bicycles. So a scholarship for what level? Uh, is there universal grade school education, high school, university? What, what levels does this go to? It's for students up to Fifth grade, I believe. So what? I'm not sure what that's called. Elementary school level. So for younger students, not we couldn't afford students going to college. Tell me about the 50 compassion houses that you've helped fund. We've had to discontinue that because construction, the first compassion house we built cost $500, but then construction costs rose to over the years to the point where it was costing $2,500. And that helps one family or one individual. We can drill a well for $2,200. So it just wasn't cost effective to keep building, you know, funding these compassion houses, even though the lives of the people who received these houses were just unbelievable. Unbelievable. You, you wonder how they're still living. And we have to say no. I don't even know if people currently have any idea of the devastation wrought by Agent Orange. Could you fill in? I think you're filling in history for a lot of people who are younger than you and I, because I don't think people even know now what Agent Orange is, uh, except if they were around at that time. I can't give you facts and figures. And to me, that, that actually the stories of the people are more compelling to me than, than a figure anyway. One of the compassion houses we built was for the, the home of Mrs. Ha. She and her husband, when her daughter was born, it was obvious she had severe birth defect because her husband had been exposed to Agent Orange during the war. When he saw that, he booked. He took off leaving Mrs. Ha and her mother to raise this child. When I met this child, she was 15, but looked, well, much younger. She was strapped to a chair because she severely retarded. She had this insatiable craving for water. So she's drinking water all day long, which means she's urinating all day long. Well, when her mother and grandmother were at home, they could lift her up and clean her periodically. But at some point, they had to go to the rice paddies to work, leaving her alone, which meant they had to, leave, they had to tie her to her chair. And then come back and clean her up. I mean, what kind of life is that? So we we built what the Vietnamese call a compassion house. What they had been living was mud wall, thatch roof, dirt floor. And this was a two-room cement and brick structure with a cement floor and and tin roof. And actually they had one room where the where the daughter was 
was specially designed to have a shallow basin with a drain under it to wash away the urine. This, as I said before, this is one family out of four million. What Agent Orange did was it killed people immediately from when they were exposed to it, or they died after a ling- you know, lingering illness, died of cancers. It changed the genetic structure of people so that their children were born with horrible, horrible defects. Some, well, just grotesquely twisted. And the worst cases of that I've seen are when the children are alert and aware. It's just hard to see that. And again, the reason that Agent Orange was used, the U.S. forces used it as a defoliant to open up the jungles because that would expose the enemy fighters and make it so that they couldn't make incursions. And so without any concern for how this poisoned the country, the water supply, the the food that people ate, and the people that fell on and burned and destroyed, that wasn't important. It was only important that we make advantage for the United States side, so to speak, the, the South Vietnamese. Folks, uh, I just want to remind you, you are listening to Spirit in Action. Mike Bame is our guest. The website that you'll track him down at is mqivietnam.org. Now, this is based out of Madison, but the work, the healing work that's needed is throughout Vietnam. And Mike has been pursuing this work for 30 years now and really needs continuing support because the damage is still there on the ground in Vietnam. And it's not what tourists get to see, but it is extremely important that we continue to heal the damage that we as a nation brought upon the nation of Vietnam. So you'll find a link to mqivietnam.org on Northern Spirit Radio. Dot org, my website, along with links to all of our guests of the past 17 years. And again, I interviewed Mike first 15 years ago. There's so many good workers for world healing like Mike who are extremely important. They need your help and that need continues. So please reach out and support via the website mqivietnam.org. Also follow the other links, post comments on this program, uh, support us. We try and get the word out about people doing world healing. You know, folks, there's a lot of news, which is all doom and gloom. And the hurting places in the world need to be lifted up. But my mission as part of Northern Spirit Radio and doing Spirit in Action is to lift up those who are doing the healing work for the world. So it's the bad things are there and you can be part of the healing. I hope that this work of Mike Bame and others inspire you to be a world healer yourself. Now, again, we're talking about all this work that MQI has been doing in Vietnam. You're not doing it executively, Mike, from the United States. It's not like, oh, I have an idea. Here's what they need to do in Vietnam. You're working with so many different organizations. And Fan Van Do, you mentioned already, is a key person for MQI in Vietnam. Tell me a little bit about Fan Van Do. Well, going back to address what you just said, we, from the beginning, realized that we, we don't know enough to make any decisions about how to fund projects in Vietnam or which projects need funding. We have always sat down 
with the women's union, with VAVA, with other, the education authorities, the Red Cross, and listen to them about what they needed. And of course, we have Fan Wando evaluating their request and then making recommendations to us which we should fund. Doe was um, born at the tail end of the French War, and he doesn't have much memory of that. He, he doesn't remember his mother, only heard as he grew up that she died because she had, I think, been hemorrhaging from delivering him, and it never healed because she had to keep running to the bunker with him and the other kids to avoid the French planes. And eventually that, that killed her. Years later, when he was 11 years old, his father was suspected, and that's all it took, suspected of working with the Americans. So he was taken out at night and, and executed. A year later, his only other brother was trying to swim away to escape fighting and machine gun. So, and he says, this is a typical story. Well, he, he's just, he's an amazing person. It's like, I've known him for more than 25 years and still, you know, it's like peeling the layers away from an onion. He has so much ability. He's very driven. He excelled at the uh, university supported by his sister. And his major was the teaching of English. And that's how I met him. When I delivered the funds for the Milai Loan Fund, it was a big deal. It was one of the first loan funds in Vietnam. So I met with the director of the Women's Union in Hanoi. This next time I came to Vietnam, the Women's Union of the province were left to find their own translator. So they contacted this teacher of English, Phan Van Do. And that's how we met. And I still remember him very serious reading and translating this four-page report saying that the meal I loan fund had been completely successful except one cow died. And then the next day we went to meal. I visited many of the women at the end of the day, Doe turned to me and said, you know, Mike, when I read that report yesterday, I didn't believe it. Now I do. From that moment on, we just began to work with each other. It never occurred to me till years and years later, we never even talked about it. We never signed a document. We just began working together. And so what does he do on the ground there? He's not just a translator by any means. He's got contacts with all of these organizations, the Women's Union of Quang Nai. You mentioned VAVA, Vietnamese Association of Victims of Agent Orange in Quang Nai province as well. What does he do on the ground there? He's since retired from, uh, he was a teacher of English. That was his main main job. And he's retired from that. He moved with his family down to Saigon because Ever since his father was executed, he and the rest of his siblings were blacklisted. I mean, and so he could, he's always followed. The security forces are, are shadowing him all the time, even now, all these years later. And he just had to get away from that. So now he travels back and forth from Saigon to Guangai. Incidentally, Vietnamese call it Saigon, not Ho Chi Minh City. Oh, I, I was wondering about that. I mean, you see buses going north to south, Hanoi, Saigon. What he does is we'll meet with the women's union, and they will propose another village for a loan fund, for example, or Vava has a project, or somebody has a project. He will go himself to 
check out the, you know the need for this project and then make a recommendation to fund or not to fund and then once the project is underway he monitors it to make sure that it's done successfully the well drilling and so on he's always looking for ways to save us money our current well driller the first two wells cost us 8000 each this well driller charges us 2200 and it was from Dole looking and bargaining with this guy. But his main function is paperwork. It's a nightmare in Vietnam. And he has to not only do the paperwork for MQI, but he has to teach the locals. For example, we're, we're now providing forage grinding machines for the farmers. And so he's had to teach the farmers union who have no knowledge of their own bureaucracy, how what paperwork they have, what forms they have to fill out, and how to fill them out. It's probably the paperwork that takes so, the most time for him. Does he have an official title with respect to Madison Quakers, Inc., the MQI? And are you executive director? I, I don't actually know if you've got a fancy title or not, besides an honorary member of the Women's Union. Yeah. No, I am executive director. Doe is uh, project coordinator, you know, for all of our projects. And to give an example of his skills, his skills are widely recognized in Quanghai province. And some years ago, in fact, I was there in Vietnam when this happened. He was approached by one of the major road building contractors of the province, uh, Vietnamese and millionaire, how many times over. He wanted to hire Doe to oversee all of his road building projects, which would have meant certainly a high five-figure salary or even a six-figure salary. And when I met Doe later that day, he told me about this. And he said, do you know what I told him? I said, I don't live my life to make money. That is unheard of in Vietnam. To not be money-centric, huh? I have to say that this is a man I would like to meet. And by the way, I don't know the way the names go in Vietnam. I do know that when I was living in Togo in West Africa, Peace Corps, when people said their names, their family name was first. And what we would call a first name comes at the end. Is Doe a family name or is it a, a, a first name as we'd call them? Yeah, it's uh, the same as in Togo. But you would never say, his family name is Fun, but you would never say Mr. Fun. He's Mr. Doe, Teacher Doe, uh, Brother Doe. And for me, I'm never Mr. Bame. I'm Mr. Mike or Brother Mike or so on. I'm thankful that Mr. Mike or Mr. Bame or whatever it is, is doing all this work. Do you imagine at any point retiring from this work? No. This, I mean, this work has cost me dearly. There was a period around 2009, 2010, when I didn't think, I knew I didn't have much longer to live. And in fact, I'd even chosen my successor. I survived that period. But despite that, I need to do this. I mean, it fulfills some, some deep need for moral balance to be able to do this work. So I won't be retiring. I used to think that, well, I will, I'll do it as long as my health holds up, but it now looks like funding is going to determine how much longer that I can do this. 
Well, do say a few more words about the funding. Is that one of your key functions? You can't be there overseeing projects. I imagine you're delegating and communicating with Doe about the projects. But is one of your key functions the fundraising end of it? It is. I mean, it's it's the most important function. And, you know, I do various things to raise funds. Um, as I mentioned, I used to, I crisscrossed this country for about 15 years giving presentations, but I can no longer do that because there's no interest. But we do have a special fundraising event coming up next year. Next year will mark 50 years when I built a boat from a kit and paddled down the Mississippi River from the source Lake Itasca to New Orleans. Now I'm building a wood strip kayak out of redwood house siding that I picked up, you know, years and years ago. I'll be using that kayak to paddle from the source Lake Itasca to the Gulf of Mexico. And this time it's solely to raise funds for our projects in Vietnam. And, and who are the people that you are fundraising with? I thought that maybe, and and this might be a just crazy imagination on my part, that the people, U.S. service people who had spent their time in Vietnam would be amongst the leading funders. Who are the organizations, groups, individuals who fund this work, who have been funding this work? There are a handful of veterans for veterans actually who give substantial amounts of money for our projects. But for the most part, veterans don't want any part of this, including Veterans for Peace, which shocked me when I finally you know, accepted that because I kept trying to get them involved. But they're just not interested in these projects. But it's individuals. There doesn't seem to be some are Quakers, some just hear of us. It just they're individuals not affiliated with any particular, sometimes affiliated with Quakers, but sometimes I don't know who they're affiliated with, who have heard of us and start funding us. So there's not an organization that, or organizations that are consistently funding us, but maybe an individual from an organization. I don't know how to put, and that's not very clear. Are there other organizations like MQI, Madison Quakers, Inc., doing this kind of healing work? Or is this all happening out of Wisconsin? I'm, I know that there are veterans, there are people impacted by this war everywhere in this country. Young men who were sent off, people who, who fought between parents and children's and government. And I mean, there was so much energy, both pro and con, that went into it from this country. It can't be only in Madison where someone like yourself, you found a light leading towards this healing. There was a directory that I, of NGOs working in Vietnam that I came across many years ago. And it, the number of organizations helping in Vietnam are in the hundreds. And I know there are a number of veterans doing work in Vietnam. I don't know much about them. I, or, you know, how many, I think where we differ, certainly from the professional NGOs like CARE and Oxfam and, and the others is our grassroots focus, you know, our person to person relationship focus. Um, I've been told by representatives of, of some of these professionals that I, I should be telling the Vietnamese what they're going to do. 
you know, and no, neither do nor I believe in that. One of the keystones of the work you did there, and when you, certainly when you started, was the microcredit loans that you did, folks around Milai and the other villages. I think there's 14 of them in the Kwangnai province. What does a microcredit loan look like on the ground in Vietnam? For us, it starts with Doe and I. In the early years, I should say, we can't afford to fund any more microcredit programs where our funding has fallen and the cost of funding a program has risen. For example, the focus is on cows now. The women all want to buy cows. Well, in the beginning, when we we set up the Milai Loan Fund, a cow cost a little over $100. Then that price went up and up. You know, it was supply and demand. Until some years later, the cow cost three or $400 and which was out of the reach of these women. And so they started buying calves and for a hundred dollars, that meant we had to change the two year loan fund period to three years so that the calf could mature and have calves of its own. Well, then the cost of calves rose to such, I think it's up to $500 now for a calf. We don't have the funds to provide enough money for women in different villages you know, to, to buy these calves. When we started out the loan fund, I would come over and part of my, my visit there would be to visit different women who had received loans to the loan fund. And then we'd come back and have a wrap up meeting with the women's union where they would propose new villages for us to fund. After I left, Doe would visit these new villages, ascertain whether these villages are truly poor whether the strata of poor women is big enough for us to invest in a loan fund. If he said yes, then we would start raising money for that fund. When we agreed and delivered the funds, the women's union would then go into this village, working with the local village women's union, the province women's union, working with the local village women's union would go through the list of eligible women to determine whether they should receive a loan or not. And if they found that this woman was healthy, but her husband was an alcoholic, she was not a good risk. Another woman might have health issues, but had children that can help her. She is a good loan risk. And so from there, they would come up with 30 women usually to receive loans. Then they would set up, the women would receive the loans. The women June personally delivered this cash and sometimes even went with them to buy the cow to make sure the money was used properly. Then there'd be monthly meetings to teach the women how to raise these cows, but also traditional values and traditional customs and healthcare training. And then at the end of the two years, the loan fund, the loan was paid back and a new group of women were chosen. And then the cycle would begin again. But because of the rising prices, you still, you need to increase the fund to make it at all useful, right? Because without because since the cost of a cow or a calf has continued to climb, even if you return the money in a loan fund like you've been describing, you still need to increase it to be able to do the same kind of work in the future. The women's union, these village women's union, are under a lot of pressure. I mean, there are hundreds of women who want access to these loans. And so 
a compromise they've come up with is they give out loans of $250, for example, which means they can give out loans to more women. But that leaves these women scrambling to find that second $250. And quite often they end up going to loan sharks. And so it defeats the purpose. What we need is we need a cash influx of in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, to be able to decrease the, the pool of money in each of these villages and, and then actually move into to other villages. But that's beyond what we've been able to raise. I should say, no, this is on me. This is beyond what I've been able to raise. I'm just not, I lack something. I'm not a salesperson. I don't know how to sell, you know, and get people to, to give more money. I don't think you know how to be glib. Just uh, there's people who can ask for money and, and they have no recognition of what you're asking in the relationship, the honesty in the transaction. I think you're probably too honest for some fundraising techniques. Does that sound right? I don't know how to answer that. Is there anything else you want to tell us about the work, the connection to Vietnam, MQI, Madison Quakers, Inc., Vietnam.org, your website? Is there anything else you need to tell us? And, and how can anyone be connected with your trip down the river in your kayak? And by the way, can you only build that because you're a carpenter? Is that why you know how to build a kayak? I used to do carpentry and a little bit of woodworking, but I have to say this kayak, it's, it's, a, it's been a stretch for me, but it's gonna, it'll look fine. Well, when I was doing carpentry work almost 40 years ago, when and working on this porch that I was building and the next door neighbor had taken off his redwood siding to put up vinyl. And so I got some of that siding specifically to use someday to make into a boat. I didn't think it would take 40 years, but this was this was the perfect time to do it. And so how can people be part of your trip? We're putting together, you know, Norm Sockwell, publisher of the Progressive Magazine? Yes. he um, He's a gem. He's just a genius at organizing. And he has been helping me from even before I went to Vietnam that first time. So working with him and the rest of our board of directors were this is a, a major, what would you call it, media push. We're going to get involved with social media, for example, which I have never done before, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, that sort of thing. And all of that's going to happen around the first part of December. And that's when I'm going to be sending mailings also, asking people to get involved, contribute either as a one-time contribution or say so much per mile or even put together a group of canoeists to, to travel with me for an afternoon, a day or more as a way to raise funds. Actually, if anybody else had any other ideas, we'd love to hear it. This is kind of new territory for all of us. And folks, if you do want to get a hold of Mike Bame, what you want to do is go to M. MQI, those are initials for Madison Quakers Incorporated, mqivietnam.org. That link is on northernspiritradio.org. You can find Mike's email, his phone number. Call him up, talk to him, be part of the energy for this, this healing of a scar that we've left on Vietnam from 
the more than 10 years that the U.S. was at war in that tiny Asian country. I want to thank you. I want to thank Fan Van Do. I want to thank the Women's Union. All of this, the healing work happens when we work together. And you, Mike, have been such a significant force. And of course, my appreciation also goes out to Joe Elder and Joanne Elder. So much by working together, we can do good in this world. And that you've put your force, your life on that calling for 30 years is an inspiration to me to live better in this world. And I hope it is for our listeners too, for Spirit in Action. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. One more time, the website is mqivietnam.org, linked on nordenspiritradio.org. Get in touch with Mike Bame there. Before we go out, I want to share a Holly Near song from her very first album, While the Vietnam War Still Raged. It's a song about healing and hope as Holly saw Americans change in facing the damage we did to the people of Vietnam, and we can only hope that the willingness to heal is similarly energized. Here is Oh America by Holly Near, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. I sang my song of protest to the war that we wage. I met a man named Chester, over 80 was his age. He introduced Tom Hayden and he welcomed George and Jane. He said he'd spoken out against the war over the radio back in 1954. Oh, America, I now can say your name without feeling bitter and without feeling shame. I drive across your countryside, your cities and your towns, and I saw friendly people come and turn my head around. Once we met a woman, she said, answer if you can. Do you mean we've been aggressing all this time in Vietnam? Thought that we'd been helping people fight to save their land. And her voice began to quiver as she cried. Her life began to change once she knew that they had lied. Oh, America, I now can say your name without feeling bitter and without feeling ashamed. I travel across your countryside, your cities and your towns, and I saw friendly people come and turn my head around. I sang for 50 people who were all three times my age. Some were much too tired to even show their rage, but their eyes were filled with moisture, I could see it from the stage. One said, what can I do to stop the I don't think that this old body can take it anymore. Oh, America, I now can say your name without feeling bitter and without feeling ashamed. I travel across your countryside, your cities and your towns, and I saw the friendly people come and turn my head around. We were in Muskegon, Michigan, where Wallace was their man. The paper let us know that all the people there were mad at us crazy commie hippies who were traitors who are bad. But 2,000 people showed up that night and let us know that they were going to set their paper right. Oh, America, I now can say your name without feeling bitter and without feeling ashamed. I travel across your countryside, your 
Music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. And our lives will feel the echo of our healing.